This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. You cannot look away, for everywhere you turn, it's there, watching, waiting to strike. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 397. Thank you so much for making us part of your day or night in some way. It truly is an honor. And thank you for continuing to be patient with us over the course of the past week while we're taping more episodes and conversations that are on the way. This time around, we are joined by one of those very conversations. It's Ari Costa and Aaron Gelabolo, the award-winning writer-directors behind the new film All Fun and Games, a time of release in select theaters and available on demand everywhere. Right now, we'll talk about how this went from one of the hottest specs in Hollywood to landing on the desk of the Russo Brothers production company, Agbo, where it was brought to life with a tremendous cast and vision and you're going to know once you hear from these guys just how passionate they are about the horror genre and this movie does not disappoint you're going to be let in on the entire process from script to screen designing the world crafting the scares and providing the safe space for some truly spectacular performances and stunning visuals the boot crew podcast episode 397 is now slaying Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two truly exciting creators. He went from being the assistant to the showrunner of the multi-Emmy-winning Scrubs to writing and directing for the program. He created a collection of short films, including Five Minutes to Midnight, The Bride, and the award-winning The Internet Kills in 2020. He also runs and hosts the Because We Love Making Movies podcast, featuring fascinating conversations with people from all facets of production, cinematographers, costume designers, actors, directors, and more. He is Aaron Gelabolo, also here with us. He's behind the scenes for some of pop culture's biggest moments. For example, his early work, some as coordinator in comedy development for The Office, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec. He's assisted directors on TV shows like multi-award winners, Happy Endings, Up All Night, and Community. Produced and directed his own acclaimed short films and projects and began a longtime partnership with Joe and Anthony Russo, which saw him producing the movies Captain America Civil War, the Oscar-nominated Avengers films, and Netflix's Extraction 1 and 2. Now, the senior VP of production for Agbo Films, he is Ari Costa. Together, their combined talent and imagination has proven to be an unstoppable force across the collaborations that have led to their debut feature film. It follows a group of teens who unearth a cursed dagger that summons a powerful demon who forces them to play twisted versions of childhood games. All fun and games is in select theaters and available on demand everywhere now. We welcome the guys behind it all, writers and directors Ari Costa and Aaron Gelabolo. Yeah. Thank, Thank you guys you. for being here. Thank you. you. You've done your homework. Ah. <laughs> that introduction. Oh, wow. Man. Seriously, good. Fantastic. <laughs> well, again, great. you guys, what a tremendous blast this film was. I mean, it is EC Comics by way of Evil Dead with elements of the greatest sci-fi horror classics uh, gateway films thrown in for good measure. And I'm so excited to kind of work our way through to this film, beginning kind of with a walk down the path of what both of your own personal relationships to the genre has been like. Ari, I'll take you first. What is your earliest memory of being galvanized by 
I guess the cinematic power of horror. Yeah, I mean, I I started off as a, as a child basically afraid of everything. Sure. And <laughs> when I was five years old, I went over to my buddy's house, and his dad decided that it was appropriate to to watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and Freddy Krueger is forever embedded in my my memory. Um, and I was scared shitless that day. And I remember walking home that night, a block and a half to my own house, and. For some reason, uh, when I went inside, nobody was there. My mom, my dad, my sister, nobody was there. I started calling around the house for them, upstairs, downstairs, went into their room. Finally, I decided to go check the back guest room and my family all jumped out at me. It just so happened that they decided to scare the shit out of me the night I, uh, that I saw the scariest movie ever. Of course. And I literally was scarred. I slept on my sister's floor for, for a year. But what that did is it kind of turned on a switch for me to consume every horror movie that I could get my hands on. You know, I started watching everything from The Exorcist to The Shining to Sleepaway Camp to all those sorts of you know classic Evil Dead movies, all of them. Um, and Aaron and I, when we met, developed a you know a, you know talked about our appreciation for this genre as well. Oh wow, that's a great answer, Aaron. Man, talk to me. The first movie that blew my mind was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm. uh, because it you know I was definitely a home video child where all the horror movies were. That was the only way I was going to see them, you know, because I was I was far too young. And I could see them at home under the so so called supervision of my parents, and I saw that movie, and it just felt like a documentary. Yes, you know? so creepy and real, and yet, as I would find out later, very cinematic. And and then I I realized it was based on this sort of true story of this guy Ed Gein or Gein, who was like the original Jeffrey Dahmer. And you're like, oh my god, this might have happened. And that was really the doorway into horror. You know, before that, I really was obsessed with Stephen King, which I think is super formative for me because, you know, it was all about the characters and the people. He always says, if you don't care about the people, you're not going to be scared, you know, and you, and you won't care about the monsters. And, and yeah, I mean, Texas Chainsaw was, was the one. And then after that, it was just everything, everything to get my hands on, you know, like Ari said, Evil Dead 1 and 2, Exorcist, you know, movies like Demons, Dario Argento. I became a lifelong subscriber to Fangoria. You know, it was, it was that, that was like, it just, it's just, it was the gateway drug, you know, was, was Texas Chainsaw. Mm. What is maybe, I don't know, a scene or sequence from any given horror film that you saw in your formative years? that made you feel a certain way so powerfully that is to this day an emotion you chase to synthesize in your own work. All right. Do you got one in particular? Huh? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> this, so maybe this encapsulates sort of Aaron and my humor, and it also encapsulates uh, our desire uh, to blend genre. But I'm thinking specifically about Peter Jackson's Dead Alive when the old woman's ear falls off in her suit in and the custard stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, first of all, I'm obsessed with that movie. Like the way it blends comedy and also like the sort of gross out genre, the special effects angle. Like that's the kind of stuff I, I strive to do if Aaron and I can ever get there and it's like become socially acceptable so that we're not just artists on the fringes that we, people can enjoy that with us. But I, I mean, I was so endlessly entertained and just love that movie so much. Like if I could ever get back to that moment, it would be incredible. Aaron, you got one? Oh man, it's so like, that's just so, it's such a hard, I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is a weird one. Cause it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a, a horror movie. Um, 
you know, I'll give, I'll give two answers. I think, I think one that always stands out to me is, is the shining. And it's just, it's the blood coming out of the, out of the, out of the elevators. It's not necessarily frightening, but it's so indelible. It's such an indelible image. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so, Oh my God, what is that? You know, it just one frame, one shot when the couch floats, you know, cause there's so much blood and you're like, Oh my God, this is it's just un- like, we're going to drown in it. That, that sequence just, I think just in terms of what the power of imagery can do. And yes. then in that genre. And then I think just as a, as an emotional visceral, again, it's, this isn't a horror movie, but, but the scene in Scarface in the bathroom with the chainsaw, which I think kind of is a horror movie mm-hmm. like that to me is when you're not, you're doing violence. Well, it's like De Palma would always say you get, uh, penalized for doing violence well it's the only thing you really get in trouble for you know if you really effectively do it and so i think that's definitely one of those sequences where he does not shy away even though it's all done in cuts and you just feel terror and 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 it, and it ends so badly you yeah. know yeah and those are moments that you take away with you too which is another yes. thing about the power of horror you those images sit in your head forever for sure, for sure. as you both grown into making films of your own how has your appreciation and fandom of the horror genre evolved from this new perspective that you both have gained since being young horror fans? I mean, I, I think that horror and comedy, like they always say, are like, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. Uh, the, the timing and specificity to achieve true scares and to achieve true laughs it's 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 very difficult and i you know think it's a high bar for someone who can do both so i i think like us being fans of the genre and then us actually uh making our first movie has just made us uh, appreciate the art form all the more and also to realize how incredibly difficult it is to make a movie you know it's like it's just as hard to make a bad movie or a mediocre movie as it is to make a good movie it's like it's a truly difficult art form and you know i think aaron and i learned um how important collaboration is and how important it is to get people on the same page early on as far as the vision of your film um so i think all it's made me do is like respect the master so much more really sure aaron anything to add to that yeah yeah i mean i think uh uh yes i i think the 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 thing I try to always keep in mind is not to get jaded and not to get, because I think, I think Hollywood, the one thing Hollywood does is sort of like, Oh, we've seen that done that. We're looking for something we've never seen before. You get this kind of attitude that you hear things like elevated horror mm-hmm. or jump scares are cheap. And like Ari said, you know, it's all very hard to do well, you know? And I think what it, what I always try to approach it with is just like a sense of wonder and a sense of excitement that is exactly like, when I was a kid reading Fangoria because it's so easy for people to go, Oh, you can't do that. No, that's never going to work. And we're not going to buy that and blah, blah, blah. All these terms that just you can crush your soul when you're trying to be creative and trying to be, you know, uh, get everyone as excited as you. So I think, I think in addition to what Ari said about respecting the, the masters and, and, and the filmmaking craft, it's also just trying to keep the same spirit. You know, that why, why you love it is why you're here. So don't, don't lose that. You know what I mean? Don't, don't be blase about it. Mm, And you've captured that spirit so well in this movie. And before, before we get into it too, I I wanted to get your opinion on this, Uh, the state of the horror genre right now in 2023, the, the biggest success stories in cinema have been by way of the genre. We've had massive moments in culture 
through horror like A24's Talk to Me that had just come out or Terrifier 2 from the shocking oh, theaters, uh, you know, last year and earning earning like 15 million bucks making this movie for 250,000 and so all of a sudden getting a wide release over AMC theaters just by word of mouth alone and streamers like Shutter and and Screenbox popping up and the Halloween season seems to get pushed back further and further starting earlier and earlier. Why horror? Why now? I mean, my answer is like, it's never gone away. Mm-hmm. I just think like, I think, I think it just shows that it's a, it's an, it's an evergreen genre, you know, for anybody to come and, and, and personalize it. I mean, I think for, for, I think for Ari and I most recently, it was kicked off with Ari Aster arriving and being like, okay, I'm going to do art films inside of horror genre, but they're going to, they're going to blow your mind and they're going to push the, they're, you know, Robert Eggers showing up. Then you have um, um, Barbarian, which was just, Amazing. I mean, Barbarian, I saw in a packed theater opening weekend. I remember texting Ari being like, you're going to be so angry when you see this film because it's such a good idea. It's such an elegant script. Zach Krieger is such a master already, you know, and then, and then Pearl X, you know what I mean? Talk to me. Like it, what I, what I think is so great about it now is that you, you really have audiences that are, they're so starved for something original that if you give it to them, they will be as excited. Barbarian is just as much, you know, owes its success as much to everything everywhere all at once, because it's like when something's original, people are going to be like, Oh my God, you got to see this movie. And so I think horror is just like a lot of genre, like comedy, like action, it allows you to be daring, you know, because it's, it's a backwater. It's a, whatever it's, you know, uh, it's just a horror movie, right? And so I think I think people when people aren't paying attention, like you know, uh, to these bigger movies or dramas with a capital D, horror is just exciting. It's it's always you know. I heard Damien Chazelle say today, he's like, art's more interesting when it's at its lowest. You know, <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> so like, yeah. So anyway, that that's yeah. I think it's a great time for horror. And I, yeah, I think I think beyond that, it's like you know, going to a horror movie, especially if you just watch the audience. There's the f- the full spectrum of emotions. Like Aaron and I were yeah. lucky enough to, to do an advanced screening with Agbo of our film, and it was the first time we really saw it in a packed theater. And to to hear people laugh, to hear people like you know scream, to see people like clench their fists and hold on to the person they're next to, and to see people like tear up. Like to have that full spectrum of emotion, like not all theater going and movie going experiences are like that, but horror films are that like singular event where you can almost get that full spectrum, which is, which is unique. Mm. Talk about finding each other. Uh, we met at an open dance card. No, that's not, no, we we met on the set of community. Uh, I, after I left working for scrubs and bill Lawrence, I got a job working as Joel McHale's assistant, uh, you know, to pay the bills. And and all of a sudden I found myself on the set of community and I was like, Oh, the Russo brothers, they directed Arrested Development. Holy shit. Wow. I didn't know they were involved in this. And then I met Ari because he was their assistant and we were both writer directors trying to do our thing on our own. And we started trading scripts back and forth. And quite honestly, finally I was like, uh, you know, I was like, wow, we should write something together. Let's try writing something together. And he was, he had gone down to Atlanta to do civil war with the Russos. So we wrote it over Skype which now we use zoom and it was so much fun. We wrote it so quickly and right away we got, you know, meetings. Uh, and so we were like, okay, I was like, wow, let's write a feature. So we wrote, we wrote a feature and that feature actually got Gil Garcia Bernal attached for a minute. And we went down to see him in Mexico city and he like sat with us for three hours and read through the script. And it, and he was so gracious and so amazing and such a dream come true. And at the very end of the conversation, he goes, well, who's going to direct? 
and we in our arrogance are like, well, obviously us, we're, we're going to direct. And he's like, Hmm, have you directed before? And I was like, we were like, no, he's like, well, I think you should. I think you must. And that was the kick in the ass that got Ari and I to go, wow, we do need to direct together and make shorts and stand on the floor together. Because for five years, because our relationship is basically 10 years now for five years, we wrote together. And then for another five years, we made a bride and internet kills. So like, yeah, that, that would, that was sort of, uh, uh, yeah, from my perspective, that was our, you know, our, 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 you know, how we came to work together, which has just been, it's just more fun than working Mm -hmm. alone. Aria, I want your opinion on this too. What does that partnership bring out in you that you might not have on your own? You know, I think Aaron and I struggled with this early on because we were like, you know, when we were figuring out how to direct and even, you know, how to write together, there was, there was a point that I think you inevitably come to where it's like, well, I want to go this way and I want to go this way. So maybe we're not actually good partners because we don't think the same. And then you quickly realize, no, 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 we are good partners because we don't think the same. If we were to think the same, then what would be the point of a partnership? So it's really that idea of how we elevate each other. You know, it's like, you know, who's more passionate, you know, who's who's more passionate in the moment? Who's fighting for something in the moment? And can we make the other person, uh, you know, either understand us or does the other or is the other person's idea maybe have a little more value? And I think it's that middle ground that we come to, which ultimately we both realize is better than that singular idea we might come to apart. Um, and I think it's like that's like the magic sauce that gives us um, it gives us all the things that we've had success with and that we've really enjoyed. And, you know, most of all, I think that we truly and we, we were friends before we started all this. We remain friends. And I think like it is it is what we come to with both of our sensibilities combined. That is our superpower rather than uh, rather than be apart. Mm-hmm. And writing session over Zoom. I'm curious as how just the mechanics of that worked. Do you actually flush out an entire script and entire ideas uh, from beginning to end over zoom or is it kind of like here's here's a framework of where you want to take it Ari, you go away and you come up with some ideas you know aaron goes away and come up with some ideas you meet together go over those ideas or or you literally go top to bottom and sit there on zoom i mean it's a little bit of everything because yeah. we start out we start out talking endlessly about what about this what about that what about this character what about this character and then a lot of times we'll go off and write character biographies or write little treatments or just kind of think on something. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll start writing pages or Ari will start writing pages. It's always good to have something, you know, but when we are writing, we are, we have the script up and I'm a big believer in the Eric Roth school of, and the Robert town, you know, start at the beginning and go through it. Mm-hmm. And when you're redoing a scene, retype it next to the other screen because you need perspective and you need rhythm, you know? And so, it is very methodical. You know what I mean? It's like, it's been a little different lately because lives have sort of changed. And so we're sort of compartmentalizing, but the ideal situation is because again, what Ari's saying is, you know, to the point about the partnership and us being different, it's like, instead of getting mad at the other person, okay, explain to me why it doesn't work for you. And I'll explain to you why it works for me. And then, Oh, wow. If it, if that doesn't work for you, if I change it, it will. And then that might make my idea better you know because like the one piece of advice i've always held very close is bill lawrence told me because he was a showrunner of many teams writing teams and he goes you got to have two people that make one person Hmm. like ari said like that he's like that's that's why he's like otherwise don't be a team you know what i mean so i guess all that to say like when we're when we're writing you know we're either sort of speaking the dialogue to each other or doing the scene in different ways but it is very much okay i see it this way i see it that way 
okay, well, what about this? And what about that? And, and, and then just synthesizing that into one. I mean, the thing about a team that I will say is it's nicer to be working on something at the same time because you cut out the double work. Yeah. You know, but sometimes like the, the going off on your own helps each of us figure it out in our own mind so we can speak about it more articulately. Sure. Right. Yeah. There's that too. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, Ari, I'm sure you, you, you can add to that. No, I mean, absolutely. You kind of, you kind of said it, you know, it's like, it is, it is the idea we come to together. Um, we are doing it a little differently right now because I, I just, I just had a baby. Uh, Congratulations. She's about almost 11 months now. So wow. not just, but it's, it's, uh, you know, interrupted our, our creative juices uh, a, a little bit. And so we have to find other way, you know, when, when I can write and when he can write are, are a little different right now. So we are um, doing things a little differently, but we hope to come back together to our normal process very soon. <laughs> well, at least you're probably starting to get a little bit of sleep at this point at 11 months in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's much better. It's yeah. much better. So we'll go to the zygote stages of this awesome film, All Fun and Games, beginning at the concept. So who came up with the initial idea? How did it come across your desk, so to speak? So I, I work at Agbo, which is John Anthony Russo's production company, um, as you as you know, and you stated earlier. And this came into Agbo probably about three years ago. It was a hot spec around town written by J.J. Brader. Um, and, you know, the general idea of a demon that plays um, twisted versions of, of children's games was was intact at that point. And Aaron and I saw like a, a great hook, you know, and the Russos were familiar with um the bride is what they had seen, which is which is on altar. If anybody wants to see it, that was one of our, our, our short films that the Russo saw and appreciated, really dug and, and you know inspired us to lay claim to something at Agbo. And Joe, when Joe said, Joe said, uh, remember when he watched it, he goes, he goes, wow, you guys got some chops. <laughs> That's awesome, <laughs> right? Man, it's like out of the Hollywood handbook. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So we. You know, we we found, we saw all fun and game. I mean, we we had the script for all fun and games, and you know, we saw a great potential there. And so we we said, you know, this is something that we think we can get a handle on. And basically, what we did is, you know, Aaron and I are writers and directors, so we we tackled it from a, a very personal place where we really shaped the characters and were inspired by movies like mid nineties and eighth grade and ladybird when thinking about teenagers and their relationships. And, you know, another North star for us was, was ET when thinking about the family dynamic, you know, a, a fractured family, a single mom working multiple jobs to provide for her children. You know, there, there's trauma suffered from, um, you know, their father, their abusive father abandoning them. So all those elements we, we, we infuse into it and we, we drew a lot from our own lives. And what we really strive to do is make the characters grounded and, and and relatable and you know as real as possible um so you know we rewrote it with agbo and developed it with agbo for about a year and then ultimately took it out with the director's pitch and it caught the attention of anton and and john zoyce over there who's just a fantastic producer and a friend of ours now um and you know ultimately they agreed to finance it um and you know we did a little bit more developing with them but you know the the, the process was 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 uh, sort of yeah, it came about that way. Yeah. Were any of those elements that you were talking about present in the script or were those things you had to elevate? Were there things you had to explore and elevate? I think we had to put our own twist on it. Um, I think the, for us, the, you know, the, the, the demon was, was not our demon. So we wanted, you know, we wanted things to feel, we just wanted to kind of look, put our own, 
uh, to personalize it, I think, as filmmakers. Like, you know, we had the idea of the X on the forehead, you know, both from this sort of demonic, you know, mark of the X, but also like those pictures of Charlie Manson, yeah. you know, and, and we were like, oh, wow, that's so creepy. You know, how how small it is, but yet how, how he did that to himself. And then and then I think, you know, we really wanted it to be a coming of age story. You know, like Ari was saying about mid '90s and Lady Bird. You know, wrapped in the subgenres of possession and slasher, and so we dug deeper into this idea of the backstory of the demon. You know, which was which was this idea of, of a witch in Salem and her son, and trying to have these finding these echoes and parallels. You know, into uh, into our family in the present. You know, and so and actually, all that was backstory until Joe Russo was like, "No, bring the specificity of Salem up into the world of the film." You know, which for us was great because it was like, "Okay, wow, we can really now the metaphor gets even bigger." Because the other thing was the games was always awesome because it's such a metaphor for life and for childhood, and 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 you know, you 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 learn by playing, you learn by getting left out, you learn by getting bullied. You know, games are dangerous. You know, our parents can't always be around to protect us. So all I think Ari and I really connected most deeply with the coming of age aspects of it, sure. you know, which for us was really this ability to, to, to tap into a genre of, you know, everything from Stand By Me to E.T. to, you know. Yeah, you know. I mean, the, when the script came in, it, it was great. You know, we really we really loved it, but we sort of we had to find our way in and make it our own. So, you know, the knife wasn't a part of it yet. It wasn't it wasn't set in Salem. The siblings dynamic was a little different. It's just yeah. So we really honed it in on that that family dynamic coming of age angle. And we worked a lot on the mythology for what you said about. I mean, scripts obviously are thrown around uh, all the time. Lots come across your desk. Lots come through the production company. If you could sum it up in a few words, why you chose this film as what would really be your calling card? I think, you know, personally for me, it was seeing the world through um, Ben Ainsworth, who plays Joe, seeing the world through Joe's eyes. You know, that was a little bit of uh, a time period when the, the movie actually used to be set in the, in the 90s, but we, we modernized it for, you know, so we didn't have to have 1990s cars and all sure. these elements that would make it much more unaffordable. But, you know, I think, you know, for me, Joe was my entry point into the movie, you know, coming of age during this time. This is when I, you know, became obsessed with horror movies. You know, I my my past um and you know sibling and, and dynamic with my mother isn't that different than what's what's on the page so i really think that the heart of the movie is what was what uh, appealed to me aaron yeah i'd say if i just sum it up in a couple words it would be sort of trauma and hope you know like that's the those are the sort of two sides of the of the coin because i think it's like the the yeah who asked us that aaron who who asked us that initially and when we both gave those answers uh it was zach cooperstein Right. The DP of Barbarian. He asked us because we, we, we met with him about this movie and uh, uh, he and he had to do other stuff. Uh, and uh, but but basically he was like, what if you guys had to sum up the movie in, in one word? And I said trauma and Ari said hope. Uh, but I think the cool thing about that is that uh, it's like, you know, childhood is beautiful, but it's also really ugly. I think for me, honestly, the real duality of the drama of the of the movie felt very, very uh, real and it felt very emotional. And I'm really proud of the ending of the movie because we come back to reality. Mm -hmm. And I think you get this huge emotional wallop at the end that a lot of movies skip out on, at least particularly in this genre. You know, it's like, oh, no, everything's fine. Uh, or it's a scary ending, which, you know, we, we had those. But I think when we landed on this, it, it really made it all worthwhile, you know, because yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was this idea of the family, of this family just trying to 
get through it. And these kids just trying to find their way in the world, you know, because the interesting thing is it's like Joe's looking to Marcus for, am I going to go that way? Am I going to look at Billy? Am I going to go that way? And they're not really the best examples, either of them. And that's the point. You know, it's like, it's like, cause you can't, you have to do your own thing. You have to find your own way. Your parents can't help you. No one can help you. You know, uh, uh, you get love and support, but you got to make your own choices. So that the reality of, of the situation for me was really appealing dramatically. And, and from a genre perspective. And let's talk about the cinematographer who did come on board, uh, Ricardo yes. Diaz, who Texas yes. Chainsaw 2022. Incredible. Yeah. Everyone remembers that that sunflower scene, for instance, oh, Stranger yes. Things. I mean, need we say more? The guy's, the guy's a rock star. What did yeah. you love about the sense of personality for the camera that he could bring to it, so to speak? I mean, I think, first of all, Rick is the loveliest guy you could ever meet. I mean, he has a tendency to break out into song on set. Oh, and it is... <laughs> It is the most joyous thing you could imagine. He is just the sweetest man. Um, so, you know, obviously that, you know, Aaron and I loved having, getting to work with him every single day. But I think also just Rick's, Rick's down to play. He's down to do anything. I mean, he created gorgeous images, first of all, you know, uh, which we're really, really happy with. But he understood our, our, our inspirations as well. And I think one thing that Aaron and I really strive for is, you know, with horror, with this horror movie specifically in, in general, we really love color. You know, we don't think just because you're making a horror movie, you have to stray away from color. You know, one touchstone was like Jordan Peele's Us. Mm-hmm. Another was, was E.T. But we think, you know, like, horror can exist in broad daylight. You can look at movies like, like the shining, right. And, you know, it doesn't need to just be in the dark of night when all color is gone. So I think Rick was really willing to embrace that. Um, and you know, just, he was just a true partner. Yeah. And I think also from a technical perspective and it's a little boring, but it's really important. You know, we had 20 days and Rick's experience of working both in television and on bigger movies. Uh, he, he just knew how to get it done at a very high level. Like you never, Rick was just one of those guys who like, okay, we got to do it this way to be like, yep, it's set, you know, it's done. I mean, he ran a crew like, a like a quiet general. And then when there were moments of he's like, look, if we don't shoot this way, we're going to not get it. And we had to shoot that way. You know, the, the, the sequence around the bonfire, uh, uh, that sort of kicks off hide and seek, mm-hmm. you know, that was something where we had planned, you know, I think dollies and a lot of, you know, even if it wasn't on dollies, a lot of precise shots, which would have been a different thing. We didn't have the time and it became kind of like a handheld combat sequence, which is what it kind of should have been, you know, to a certain degree. So that was, he just, he, he was very adaptive, but also, you know, he's just very meticulous in his craft, very prepared and his crew loves him, you know, which he chooses great people. You know, that's a, that's a sort of an unsung talent of, of a lot of department heads. You know what I mean? Is like, it's cause a movie is a life experience. And if you're not there with people who really are excited to be there, it's just misery. You know, it's like, you don't need it. It's just too hard. It's already hard enough, right. you know, right. also shout out to his, his gaffer, Francis Butler and the ACAM operator, Matt Schween. Amazing. The Boo Crew will be right back. Beware the glare of the evil eye. Look deep into the evil eye and know the meaning of fear. Look and you cannot look away, for everywhere you turn it's there, watching, waiting to strike. The evil eye. What does it want? What will satisfy its cravings? Only the dead know and those they choose to tell. 
American International presents John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza in The Evil Eye. It looks where fear rules and terror dwells, and horror waits for you. Watch for it. The Evil Eye. It's watching you. made incredible casting choices in this thing i mean the performances are majestic you got asa you got nat from stranger things you got benjamin from haunting a blind manor uh another mm-hmm. member of the flana fam is on board too annabeth gish who's exceptional uh-huh. and it's so awesome when you kind of look at the previous work of of this cast and the amalgamation of Tim Burton, Flanagan, Stranger Things, and the fusion of all these elements and vibes put together is very much kind of what is the unique alchemy of this particular movie that makes it so unique and exciting. Can you comment on the world that these actors, these certain actors together were able to create that nailed it for you? I mean, yeah, we were so lucky. Right. All right. I mean, we were, we were just, we were really, really, I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, our casting director, Jessica Sherman has an exquisite eye. She's just a really brilliant casting director. Everyone should be hiring. She found us basically all of the newer faces, particularly Ben Ainsworth, because we was a low budget movie. So we were not really thinking of flying people from other countries. And Jessica was kind of like, just watch this guy. He's English. I don't think we can get him, but he's really great. And he was, he was extraordinary. You know, he was like a polished English actor. And we showed him to the heads and the powers that be, and they all agreed, no, no, we have to get this guy, you know, uh, Laurel Marsden, who's wonderful. Uh, uh, Colton Stewart, who plays Pete, is great. Annabeth Gish. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Uncle Bob, who was Winnipeg, but he still was he still was fantastic. Uh, And then we were lucky enough that Natalia and Asa, who were so much more experienced than us, loved the script. And they were just excited to do stuff they hadn't done before. Like, that's Natalia's real hair. Because she didn't want we, you know, we didn't want her to be Nancy. And so we wanted this kind of Uma Thurman meets Winona Ryder from Beetlejuice vibe. And she was so excited to do it. And and Asa, you know, his process of getting into the character from the inside out was so impressive. And he played two roles, you yeah. know what I mean? And and basically like the way he approached discovering the demon apart from Marcus is so, I'll, all right, you should, you should uh, talk a little bit about that in terms of how Asa cracked that. Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I think for Asa, it was really important. Like one of the greatest things about Asa is, you know, uh, once you get to the top level with, with you know, actors of, of that level, uh, a lot of times like it's offer only, it's offer only. It's like, Okay. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to disrespect anybody, but we also, because this is such an important role and because the actor is going to be playing two different parts, like we don't really want to just trust that, that even the greatest actor can do it. We need to talk to people. We need to, you know, we need to interact with them beforehand. So he was gracious enough to meet with us and he had a blast just talking about the character. He was, you know, trying things out over, over zoom with us. Like he, we could tell that he was the guy just because he wanted to play, you know, he was open to trying everything. And I think, you know, for Asa, it was a, it was a big exploration. It was like, you know, first, like, 
where does the, the the sort of mania come from? Where where's the danger come from? Where does the chaos come from? And then also thinking about who the demon is. The demon is a scared child, right? Who was tortured and you know forced to play these games that he now inflicts on other people. So you know, can we still find that child in in the, my portrayal of the demon? Like the twisted way I might smile or the way I might talk or what my eyes are doing, you know. And then also we had this uh, local actress surprisingly who played the the demon daniel she wore a fully prosthetic mask of a boy's face that we you know inflicted all these sort of all this sort of damage onto but they collaborated you know like how might he walk because his his you know some of his toes are, are chopped off how might he talk because he's got a slit throat and so they really collaborated on crafting the way that the demon might move and and, and you know and just figuring out how to embody that but you know asa had a particularly uh tough job by playing marcus which you know, not possessed, which is something that he's not done before to play this like sort of, you know, conflicted teen character who, you know, has is full of rage because as a result of being abandoned by his father and he uses sort of his fists um, and, and violence to to, you know, get his aggression out. And then I think obviously the, the demon is a whole other thing. So, you know, it was particularly tough for for him, the whole shoot. But he was a, a true gentleman and just like a, a, a real, you know, amazing collaborator what about getting ben there i mean he has scenes where he is so clammy and uncomfortable i mean it leaps off the screen he looks like just like that's unsettling i mean ben is there Ben yeah. starts there. i mean ben ben you have to like like for flashlight tag when he showed up he's like so he's like so you know i've been rehearsing this for months in my house with my mom like she goes outside and we turn the lights off and then i go through the house i mean you know he he we had to actually shake up his performance because he was so dialed you know what i mean like there were times where he was coming like a sniper and you know to, to he was so prepared and we maybe wanted something a little bit more unpredictable but i mean the scene you're talking about where he sort of reaches the zenith of his possession was was just an incredible thing to watch because everybody was kind of you know i think saying because it's a kid and everything you know is he all right and his mom would be like no no he's fine he's fine you know yeah. uh but he was you know the, the way he sort of i think physically pushed himself mentally and, and got himself to that place where you believed he was in, he was in, in danger. Oh, absolutely. Ben would do this little, sorry, Ben would do this thing where he'd like shake a little bit and we'd be like, what, what's that, Ben? What are you, what are you doing there? He's like, well, I just had this idea that the demon is maybe talking to me in this, in my, in my right ear. And so that I like, I'm sort of listening to what he's saying. We're like, that's amazing. Yes, play that. That's fascinating. And another scene I wanted to reference too that kind of sums up a lot of why you guys decided to do this movie, and, you, and it really is is the scene is actually to me it's kind of the heart of the film, and it's that scene where the entire family is at the table, the kind of the one scene that everybody's in there, and Annabeth is is leaving for work, and it's a beautiful tennis match of character building and dialogue that feels so authentic, but at the same time very cinematic maybe because i grew up watching movies where families were real on screen like that what did it feel like to direct that scene that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite days we we did because we had the whole day we had kind of the like at least half a day to do that uh uh which was kind of like our uh you know what i'm sorry reverse that the scene around the table at night was the one that we had a lot of time for we, we had okay amount of time for that scene already in the kitchen with the family, but that was like our Paul Thomas Anderson kind of moment with them. Like we love those kitchen scenes, mm. but anytime, I mean, it was just so fantastic to just direct actors. 
Like there were no gags. There were no stunts. It was so wonderful to just be able to watch them work and watch them bring the emotion of the family to life. And so, I mean, for me, super satisfying. And, and that is like, you know, uh, was totally our ode to like the dramas that we love, you know, like the Boogie Nights and the Punch Trunk Loves and we, obviously too. Yeah. yeah. We, we sort of looked at that scene a little bit as our litmus test, which is like, if, if this scene works, the movie's going to work. Right. Yeah. Like, and this, this was everything that we strive for. And it was, it was actually when we were rewriting the script, it was the first, it was the first scene that we tackled because we were like, okay, we need to understand this family and how they interact with each other, who they are as characters. And this scene is a perfect example of how they each, you know, operate within that family unit. And, um, I think, yeah, it was, uh, you know, getting them to interact with each other, um, on the day we were directing it, the one really, really valuable thing we had, like I said, we did have 20 days, but what we insisted with producers that we, we needed rehearsal time. We needed a week of rehearsal to get our actors together. We needed Natalia, we needed Asa and we needed Ben. Unfortunately, Annabeth, you know, did, couldn't come until like a, a couple days before the shoot. But what we did, we had them watching movies together. We had them having dinner with us and we had there was a local cafe where there were board games so we'd have game night and then when Annabeth came they just sort of clicked into place as a family unit and so by the time we got to shooting that scene we were lucky enough that they they had a, a, a very short but shared history wow and let's talk about uh this the, the scene itself Salem uh was it all shot on Salem in Salem I mean it looks delicious it certainly captures a vibe tell me about that well, no, we shot in Winnipeg. So Winnipeg. It was, uh, yeah, it's Winnipeg for Salem. Uh, you know, I think the vibe was always, to, while we were, yes, setting it in Salem, it was always trying to make it feel like Americana, relatable, yeah. almost a little mythic. You know, like our touchstones for sort of the, the, the atmosphere and the tone, a big one was Donnie Darko. Sure. And even though it's 90s, it sort of plays, for us, it was, it was not necessarily... A, you know, a now kind of movie, you know, it was like, okay, this could sort of happen anytime, you know, and cause we love those sort of, even it follows was a big reference. Yeah. Yes, don't really yes. know when that's happening, I you know what that. I mean? So, so that was really important that, you know, our house is this cross between kind of the Halloween house and the home alone house. And it's so, cause it was just trying the iconography of these sort of American suburbia films is was really important to capture and maybe more important than reality so that i think was like first in terms of and then you know uh and obviously with salem sort of the idea of of, of the the bare trees and the sort of the idea of this place that could feel witchy and 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 spooky and haunted with a haunted past yeah, i think oh go ahead Oh, I was just going to say Winnipeg is, is great because it, it doubles as a lot of city. It's like um, this industrial type mill town where it could be Chicago. It could be Cleveland. It could be s- somewhere in the Northeast. And I, I, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and I went to school in, in Boston and I'm familiar with this sort of outlying area. So, you know, for us, it was a little bit as simple as like going around in a car with our scout and being like, that could play a Salem. That can't, that could play a Salem. This could be the Northeast. This works. This doesn't work. So, you know, it was very much like trying to paint that picture with locations. Mm. And then, so the film, when it opens up, we see that, that water tower, the iconic water tower from Salem with the witch and everything. And and you're, you're transported into this world instantly. But I think one of the things that really did it for me is hearing Natalia's kind of monologue at the start. It feels very whimsical and comic book like and how it kind of establishes all the characters and everything that's going on in a very direct and fun way. Tell us about creating that for us too. I mean, 
you know, everybody loves to have an opinion about voiceover. I mean, we love it. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Right. And it's, and it's, it's, but, but yet it's can be so wonderful in establishing tone and establishing where you're sort of what kind of movie, you know, you're, you're going to be in. And I think it's interesting because when we wrote that Joe was sort of Joe Russo said, Oh, it's kind of, you guys have kind of like a link later, you know, thing going on with this. And, and, and for us, it was, we were kind of aiming more for that Donnie Darko, yeah. this sort of idea of teenage angst and and uh the idea of sort of you know even virgin suicides with because it's natalia or stand by me you know this idea of perspective right so for us that was like we because there was always discussions well we can always just take it out we're like well let's hang on guys you know and i think ari and i always felt like the minute we found that the tone of the movie was very much locked in you know in terms of like bringing you into this world and this story more importantly, right? Cause it's a story. It's, it's like, that's, that's the great thing about voiceover is you're leaning forward at the fire, you know, or, or in the theater. All right. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, that's great. Yeah. Some very fun Easter eggs begin to be laid yeah. out for eagle eyed horror <laughs> fans to watch out for. Why did, why do you love uh, providing that breadcrumb trail for us? I, I think it's like, uh, a sense of history, both our own and cinematic history, which is really great. Um, I think it's fun. You know, it's fun to see who's going to who's going to get things and who's going to miss things. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's just about us being true cinephiles, really. Um, you know, they were really, really fun to, to put those little breadcrumbs throughout. <laughs> Aaron, any particular? Uh... Yeah, I mean, just to be able to have like, you know, uh, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, but, you know, Fangoria with, you know, pictures of our short on it, you know, to have Stephen King books in there, you know, to have sort of, it, we did not get to showcase it as, as, as wonderfully as we would have liked to, but the walls both in the, when you see the demon is, has put, you know, black handprints all over the wall with the photos and around the corner in the kitchen, Ari and I literally took the entire photographic past of our families from my grandfather and grandmother in Turkey to his grandparents in, in, in Russia and, and, you know, and, and everywhere else. And it's all over that wall. And like, we, it's not, it's not in the film, which is a bummer. Like, I don't even think we got it, but it was one of those things we were always trying to get as inserts, you know, sure. uh, but there's so much stuff like that, you know, one of my uh, personal faves is, um, and I think people in the Northeast or people who oh, yeah, are big, yeah, this is a great one. of Jaws may notice it, but the, Uncle Bob is drinking Narragansett ale, which is what Robert Shaw's character drinks in Jaws. And, you know, I grew up, of course, once once I was at a, uh, a legal drinking age, drinking Narragansett ale with my, my father, who's from Fall River, Mass. So I was like, we got to get that beer in there. So there's a beer and there's a poster. Um, and it's like our little shout out to Jaws as well. Oh, yeah. All that stuff is so fun, man. It's like the funnest part is a, is a horror freak. Um, I'm also, I, I'm an obsessive collector and, and preserver of uh, screen use film props and, and costumes. So I got to ask about the design of this glorious book and this knife that we see. I mean, Diana Magnus is wonderful. She's a production designer from Toronto who, you know, we, when we met with her, what was so, what's always a wonderful thing is, is her references were not movies. You know, they were art and photographs mm. and architecture and history and automatic. And the vibe of it was just like, 
whoa, this is okay. That's our movie, you know, right away. And so she was always coming at it from a place of like, there's stuff within the house. And for instance, because she was like, well, you know, it's Salem and it would have been these German families and this sort of German heritage and German witchcraft. And so there's all this kind of stuff that is layered into the house where it, whether it be antlers and horns and sayings and, and, and chairs and a style of chair all through the kitchen that she was layering, you know, all the way back to the beginning of Salem into it, you know, and, and so apart from her, you know, creativity and respect for, for sort of reality, she was also just so creative with responding to the things that inspired us. Like Ari and I, you know, we're so obsessed with wallpaper, both from sort of the shining and prisoners and these movies that make you feel like you're kind of in a fever dream, you know, and she's the one that came up with that black and white checker floor. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and then also the knife, I mean, Ari, talk about the knife a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the knife was, was uh, you know, it was Diana coming up with ideas and also our prop master, Salman McPherson, oh, yes, who yes. had a, a local, um, I, I guess the guy, I don't know the artist's name, but um, we should figure that out, like, um, who was dealing with the prosthetics and in, in, in making the knife. But Aaron and I had this idea that the knife should be made from Daniel's femur. Um, and basically, once he died, mom took his bone and, and, and carved this knife out of his bone. And she put these these incantations on the knife to sort of draw him out and then put it on the the um, Puritan's windowsill that night to sort of so they would have to sort of do battle with him forever. But the knife was something that um, we had many different iterations of. Um, and it's so cool, honestly, to have such. I mean, what we think is an iconic, you know, prop, for sure. Uh, you know that that has to do with your movie. Honestly, it's like as a horror fan and as a genre fan to have that um, almost museum piece is is really really cool. Something like that to represent your movie, definitely. And, and it really comes from the knife is definitely a, a you know a, a, a grandkid of the Evil Dead knife, you know, uh, uh, which you know is the is the granddaddy of, of those kind of bone knives. I mean, it's a lot crazier than our knife, but you know, next time we'll <laughs> we'll, do the, we'll do the skull sword. Uh, but even, you know, even the details of the knife, like on on the the sort of round bone at the top of the femur, is Daniel's face with uh, you yeah. know with his mouth open and an X is carved into it. So there's those sorts of fine details that that come into play, which are really cool too did you did you get to snag it no someone else took it oh come on they're sitting they're sitting in agbo's lobby right now so we will we'll make sure to grab them good good you guys you guys gotta do that you guys gotta do that um i also wanted to talk about the well let's go let's go to this actually first I noted something in the film, uh, and that was the absence of technology, in particular phones. The mom takes the phones away. At one point, kids are asked to burn their phones. Can you comment on that and your thoughts on, I guess, how technology or phones fit or or do they fit into a horror film? I, you know what? I'm such a Luddite, but yet I go back and forth on this because then like I'm, Ari and I both were kind of of the mind of like, we don't need phones in this movie. You know, we don't want to, let's try to get away, you know, get away from phones, blah, 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 blah. And which, you know, some of that is artfully, some of it's logic, right? Because if they had phones, they could call for help. So yeah. we did work hard to get them thrown in the fire and all of that stuff. But then you watch stuff like talk to me and euphoria and uh, uh, you know, you last night I rewatched old boy, like, and, and, they use technology so elegantly. So I feel like you just, as a filmmaker, it's on us to do it well, you know? And I think like in this particular sequence, we were kind of like, it's going to just give them a lifeline and it's going to open up a can of worms that didn't feel 
of the of the world are in if you if you if you have anything to say. Oh, I mean, it does fall in line. Like obviously, they have their own sort of singular, unique phones, and it follows. But um, it it sort of was that idea, and I think you know the script starting off initially in the '90s um, was something that we would get back. We wanted to get back to, even if it wasn't literally the '90s, at least tonally, we wanted it to feel like it was this this you know almost an, uh, like a hard to hard to sort of put your finger on um time period and so the phones were were an identifier that could could ruin that and i think you know very simply it's like you know we hope we got rid of the phones in an elegant way but it's always that point in a movie or a horror movie we're like shit i don't have service and then like you know we wanted to avoid that if possible so yeah like aaron said an added complication and you know i think there are ways to embrace technology um we just we didn't really want to do that in our film. Yeah, yeah. no, it works out. And it, it, yeah, like you said, it captures that bizarre kind of nostalgic innocence, you know, era uh, outside of eras that you guys have created with this that, that works so, so well. I wanted to talk about the score and bringing on Alex Belcher. Talk about that choice and what you love about the experience he designed for us as viewers. I mean, you know, Alex Belcher is um, a longtime collaborator of Agbo and the Russos. Alex came up, I mean, he worked with many amazing composers, but he came up most recently under Henry Jackman, who had done a lot of the Russos scores at Marvel, um, Winter Soldier and Civil War, most notably. And Alex is somebody who's been working with us for a while. He also did the scores for our television show Citadel. He's done um, the extraction movies with Henry Jackman. And, you know, I think what what Alex did and like sort of his 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 real task with this movie is, you know, it's a small movie. We shot it in 20 days. It's sub five million dollars. It's like, how do we make it feel bigger than it is? How do we make the world feel bigger? How do you open up Salem? How do you like really, you know, elevate these moments that, you know, un- unfortunately, we just didn't have time to really open up the movie. So his task was to give it like a sophistication and elegance while also, um, you know, not, you know, well, also, you know, sort of really highlighting that horror. Mm. I mean, Alex was so great because to be quite honest, like I think initially his efforts to make it bigger were maybe they just, you know, I think Ari and I had to kind of come in and go, okay, this definitely feels big, but what we're, what we're missing is this kind of haunted emotion. And then Alex was able on a dime to find that. And it became like this Howard Shore score, you know, it was like this super emotional, particularly the the cue at the end and a lot of the family stuff, the stuff that's over the family. And, and he really was able to, cause I think, you know, it's like he can do the, the, the wonderful, expansive, elegant, big score with his eyes shut. But for him to find this melody, this smaller, more haunted poetic thing for us was like, cause was our movie you know what i mean like that was so what we were trying to get across and and that is i think always the biggest joy when you're working with a collaborator that when they really nail what it is you're going for you don't have to say anything anymore you're like awesome you know what i mean like that so yeah he's he's but he's he's just he's such a fantastic artist as we get close to the end here i wanted to mention a favorite shot of mine in the film and that is we see an eye peeking out of a bale of hay and it looks so late 70s early 80s horror like in that vein of texas chainsaw massacre and i just ate that shit up like cake do you guys have any favorite scenes any particularly favorite scenes from the movie that that stand out in your mind at this moment well that's it i mean that's that is what we fought the whole movie for basically where it's like we horse traded different scenes um we're like okay 
This is the one scene, the top of the barn is the one scene that we've designed from top to bottom where we do not want our schedule or our time constraints or money or anything to eat into it. We need to do this scene exactly how we've designed it. And so uh, we, I mean, we got a whole night to do that. And, uh, you know, honestly, we had, um, we had, a, well, it wasn't a snorkel cam. What was it exactly, Aaron? No, it was, it was a probe cam. It looked like, it looks like a, like a lipstick, like a pen light, honestly, because we were using it to shoot macro close-ups uh, uh, of all the stuff in the in-between, you know, of her eye opening yeah. and uh, you know, that stuff, which was really awesome. So we initially were like, okay, we want to, we want to take, you know, what would normally be the 35 camera, 35 mil film camera in, you know, the, the digital version of that in is close. Well, of course they're like, well, we can't get that close. And we're like, well, this, this is happening. This has to happen. Like, this is the whole thing. And so they're like, okay, well maybe we can put this probe camera on these, like on a weird sort of, you know, wheelie dolly. Like it looked like an old fashioned carriage. That is so cool. and, did. And, and so it was honestly this tiny little camera going in and coming out and got so close to her eye. But that, yeah, that shot, I man, Ari, we were so happy. That was sort of our ode to Hitchcock and De Palma. I mean, that whole yeah. sequence was, was this like really our, our, our study intention and terror by coming up the stairs with Marcus and only sort of having this close shot of, of Pete. It's like, you know, he's in the barn, but you're not sure exactly where. And then you're with, with Marcus, you're with Asa going through the barn, not sure if anybody's going to, you know, who's going to live, when they're going to, when he's going to find them. And then, you know, showing the audience where she's hiding as, her, as his feet go by, like that was, you know, that was the one scene where we got it exactly as we wanted to get it. Oh my and, God. And also I think, I, I guess it's not a shot, but it's the, um, well, no, sorry. There's two other shots. There's one where Joe kind of brings the knife up, you know what I mean? And he's sort of looking at the knife a little as he's bringing it up in silhouette to himself when he finds it for the first time. But all the stuff with Natalia in the in-between from starting upside down to her actually, I mean, the upside down stuff we love and is cool, but there's actually oh, the, the upside down. What's that? You're calling it the upside down, which is from Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, no, the shot. The shot. The shot's oh, the upside okay. down. Yeah, the shot's... No, no, we're the in-between. Yeah, yeah, we're different. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're the in-between, but the shot was upside down. Uh, uh, but, I mean, there's actually a, a shot after that where she is just walking, and we have this weird Japanese lens where if you see... It's called a kawa that Rick found. It's got the sides are all bendy, and Natalia's all sweaty and looking full Winona Ryder, and she, like, just kind of walks off and falls off into the warp. And that shot is so cool for the vibe of the in-between and, you know, the movie, you know what I mean? Cause it's like that yellow in-between look we were, Ari and I kind of did always, we're like, oh, it's gonna be sort of, we, at first we thought it was gonna be a dark void and we're like, no, it needs to be something different. And then again, our love of color. And we're like, well, Mandy's all red, you know, it's all red, we can't do that. And then we found this sort of rotten sodium yellow yeah. and Ari and I like, this is it. Yeah. This this right on the demon vision as I call that through it. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. All right. So moving forward, plans for a sequel? <laughs> Early days. Well, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's that that is the big question. We're hoping that people respond to it and they like it. You know, I will say, like, uh, once you get inside this movie and you start thinking about the violent ramification of games and how things how things might work, it's you know, it's difficult. You know, on the surface it feels like a lot of games can be dangerous, but trying to figure out a way where the stakes feel real and it doesn't it doesn't, you know, you're not shortchanging the game and like the ramifications of you know, it makes a lot logical sense there are only a few i mean i will say there are games that are left on the table that we would ex be excited to do oh yeah there is a 
there was a wicked game of red light, green light, and an even more, you know, terrifying horror filled game of Simon Says that we are prepared to deliver at some point. So we do have at least two games. Yes. Yes. We do have at least two games. We want to up the blood count, up the body count. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, guys, it's so exciting. And anything on deck that you guys got? Uh, I, I mean, think you know we're, yeah. we're we're respecting the 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 strikes right now. You know, with uh, the the SAG strike and the WGA strike, we have scripts of ours that we're excited about. Um, that we're you know we're we're developing a script with an actor that we're really really excited about right now. And then you know we've got this uh, sort of a big uh, you know vampire heist film that we're working on, which is like Oceans meets Near Dark. That's that incredible. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With a lot of, with a lot of kind of odes to the hunger, you know, and, and those kind of like sort of vampire movies that aren't, that aren't outwardly vampire movies, but we love heat. We love oceans. So we were like, let's try, let's try our hand at a heist at a heist picture, you know? And so that, that's like, we're very excited about that script. Oh, that is so exciting. I can't wait. All right, one more quick thing uh, before we go, and this is a spoil. This is going to be a little bit of a spoiler. So anyone listening who hasn't seen the movie, stop listening now. Thanks for listening. Come back, (laughs) go watch the movie. Come back, listen to this part. So, okay, one of the scariest moments in 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 any horror movie that I've seen is that lady jumping out saying, "Read the book, read the book." It is fucking terrifying. Oh, my God. Talk about just nailing that. Talk about getting that picture perfect and how that felt after that take. You know, that that's a bigger discussion about jump scares only because only because like Ari, I was talking about this, you know, we, we really had to go to school on learning how to do jump scare and, and learning about timing and learning about patience and learning about is it one, two, three, is it one, two, three, four, five, is it and and we shot that, you know, kind of chronologically near the end of the shoot and we were all in shape. And I think because of that, that, that is kind of what's what we love about that is it kind of blends it blends our style, which is sort of a handheld fluid with precision kind of marriage. Right. Cause it's like you whip into her for that, for that scare. Right. And it's so immediate and crazy. Yeah. And then it's kind of a cut that's sitting in there. And then it's another whip and a cut to those two the other sort of our yeah. to the shining twins. Yeah. yeah. But like, like I think we, we really had to learn to get to that scare, you know, because we'd done, we'd done two or three or four more scares before that. Ari. I mean, right. I mean, that was, yeah, I mean, I, I think that combined with, you know, those, that was very intentional, but also figuring out how long could we sustain it in the edit and also like what, what sound design was going to do to really help that um, was, was things that we discovered in the edit. But like, yeah, I mean, that initial scare was, was very much just us studying jump scares. And we, I think we had two references on set where we were like, all right, it needs to be like this. It needs to be like this. I think one of them might've been haunting of Hill house. I'm not sure what the other one was, but yeah, we, we definitely had been planning on that one for a while. By then we were, by then we were feeling it. I think by then it's like, you kind of know when you've hit it, you know, versus a lot of the other ones were sort of like, I don't know. We'll see that. And, you know, we'll see, we see if we got that felt, that felt crazy on set. Like the energy of it felt as good as it ultimately turned out to be in the edit. And then it was just like Ari said, fine tuning it. Yeah. You know, what about getting her to repeat that, read the book in that way that many times? Oh, she's, Did she just she the actor come up with that? Yeah. Was that in the script or what? That's in the script. Wow. Right. Ari? That, that was in the script. No, she, was in the script. I mean, yeah. we, you know, interestingly enough, she was, she was someone we found the day before we, 
we shot that um that scene and she was like literally she came to our um apartment and we sat down and read the script with her and talked about it and she was just game to play she she was a, a stage actor and also in, he had been in some um local projects in winnipeg as well um and she was just like a master fine tuning it giving us different versions of what what it was but she was down to just like shout until her voice went out yeah. so she was down to play oh no, she was she was a beast i mean that by the way that first that that what if we win you know when she lets loose with the laugh yeah our simple direction to her was like you know really scare him really scare him and everybody on set was like she let it rip like that's when you when when you can give a simple direction and you get the result you have a great actor yeah. you know like it's she she just was awesome thank you so much for being here congrats on this spectacular film and on the many more adventures to come all fun and games and select theaters and vod now thank you guys thank you so much really Yay, nice to meet you great yeah. so great to meet you man thank awesome. you thank you likewise i'm a huge fan all right we'll be in touch that was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 397. Special thanks to our guests, Ari Costa and Aaron Gelabolo. At time of release, their new film, All Fun and Games, is in select theaters and available on demand everywhere now. Production tracks for this one provided by the great folks at Power Man 5000. Until next time, on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, my name is Trevor. This is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at 10. Tales from the Boo Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.